Hello and welcome back to the movies, a self-explanatory podcast. My name is Daniel Berrios, and today I'm covering the black phone. I'll be home in the morning. Where are you going? I'm staying over at Susie's tonight. Snow. The flyer. The papers call him the grabber. I wish you wouldn't call him that. You don't actually believe that story, do you? Because he can't hear you, and he doesn't really take kids that safe. Well, isn't that just peachy keen? You need some help? You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Would you hand me my hat? Yes, sir. I am a part-time magician. Are those black balloons in there? Would you like to see a magic trick? I have an announcement to make. One of our students, Finney Blake, was abducted. What if I could help the police find Finney? Surprise, surprise, another horror movie review in October. Who would have fucking thought? The Black Phone is directed by Scott Derrickson, adapting a Joe Hill short story uh, with Derrickson and co-writer Lieutenant Omega Force C. Robert Cargill. It's a story about Finney. He's a 13-year-old boy living in the 70s, just a small town, with his sister Gwen and their uh, father, who's kind of an abusive alcoholic piece of shit and you know Finn's kind of like a, he's kind of a mild-mannered kid kind of keeps to himself a lot which isn't really good when you're in middle school and dealing with bullies because if you don't like fight back or if you don't try to say much they just fuck with you further 
So he's the one getting fucked over by bullies. His sister, who's younger, is kind of a spitfire. And she will gladly take on anyone who dares fuck with her brother. So that dynamic's a lot of fun. Uh, Finney is played by Mason Thames, and Gwen is played by Madeline McGraw. So one day, uh, Finney and Gwen are walking home from school. They're talking about this guy called the Grabber. There are these reports of kids going missing, and, you know, just anybody it seems like anybody can be a target for this person any like middle school boy just randomly walking home snatched in a van uh they see maybe like balloons coming out of the van and that's all the police have to go on these kids just go missing finney's walking home one day comes across this guy in a van and uh, the guy's like, oh, I'm sorry. You look clumsy me. I'm dropping stuff from my car. Do you want to see a magic trick? And as soon as Finney sees the balloons in the van, that's it. He's grabbed by the grabber, played by Ethan Hawke, wakes up in the guy's basement. And in the basement, there's not much. It's just a mattress. It's like a toilet around the hall, uh, the door to go upstairs, and there's this phone in the corner. And... You know, immediately the kid tries to grab the phone, but there's nothing on the other line. There's no buzzing or whatnot. And the dynamic between Finney and the grabber is just something, one, just straight up creepy. I mean, this guy's wearing this sort of devil mask that seems like way too big for his face. But he seems to change the mask depending on how he's feeling. And so the first time he sees Finney... There's this sort of like big old toothed, not really an evil smile per se. It's not like, you know, the full mask where you could see like the furrowed, angry brows and the smile. It's not sinister by itself, but the smile is just on the bottom and it's a normal top half of the face. And it's just unnerving. You know, it feels like some really fucked up clown is trying to get in good with this kid and Finney who's paralyzed is just trying not to piss this guy off and so whenever he mentions like yeah the phone hasn't worked in years and leaves Finney's just sitting there freaking out doesn't know what to do wakes up in the middle of the night to the phone ringing and what's on the other end is some supernatural freaky shit that gives the black phone its like extra juice you know that that's one of the cool things i really liked about this thing is that already you've got the straightforward drama of the kid being kidnapped on one end and then when it gets supernatural and even weirder that's when the movie kind of like jumps up to another level and uh I don't know, this thing kind of comes in layers of drama. I mean, you've got the original drama, it's just like a teenage kid trying to deal with bullies and shit, which is applicable to anyone. And one of the cool things about Finney is that he really doesn't pity himself. He just kind of doesn't really know how to handle himself yet or doesn't really have the confidence to fight back. But he's never, like, crying or whining about it. You know, he never pities himself. He's always just kind of like brushing himself off and standing up and if he's scared, he's scared and that's it. And I think you can see it in Tame's eyes. He beats himself up a little bit 
but he never tries to let that slip, especially whenever it does go into the more kidnapping bits. One of the great things I liked about Tame's performance is that he's definitely terrified. You can see that. You could feel that in his performance. But he always has this great ability to hold it together. And I guess that's, you can see, I guess that's evident in like the first part of the movie where you're dealing with his home life and his dad who's been drinking after his wife's death, his wife's suicide. And, you know, he's not able to really emotionally be there for the kids because he's just sinking into addiction. And so he's taking anger out on the kids. And while Gwen is ready to fight back, Finney is just like, it's almost like his dad is the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. If he doesn't move, then his dad can't see him and can't fuck with him, right? I guess that's the way his brain works. And so having that resilience to kind of like internalize all that uh, pain and terror and whatnot really helps him out in this kidnapping bit. But I guess I like how the movie layers upon each other, like different layers of drama, whether it be his uh, as his sister dealing with the police and dealing with uh, her dad because the daughter, Gwen, she has these kind of visions and they're eerily good at predicting elements of a crime scene. So the police are getting involved because like, wait, we're hearing you talk about this shit and we haven't revealed certain details. What's up with you? So that's where like another little bit of the drama comes in. And then you've got uh, the drama with the mother and the reason she killed herself, which like it's all like a really good parfait or lasagna of terror. And uh, the movie's shot in sort of just this grimy way. Uh, I mean, it's the 70s, so they do play up some of the whole pinball machines and the big hair. And they've got Edgar Winter and... Uh, is it Edgar Winter who does Free Ride? I don't remember. Uh, they'd have Pink Floyd in the soundtrack. Like, all of that trappings of that era is definitely there. But uh, it's never too hokey for long. And it has this feeling of uh, a different kind of America where people weren't hyper-vigilant about their kids. You know, it was back when uh, you would only be home whenever the streetlights come on. And whatever happens between the end of school and that time is just your time as a kid. Whereas now I'm sitting here thinking about that for my son and just like that's a horrifying thought to leave the kid alone. But that's a different kind of Americana the neighborhood, everybody knows you in your neighborhood. The neighborhood, I guess, for one, is much smaller because people are staying more uh, tight-knit in their neighborhoods. But also, like, people talk, you're into these uh, different groups and sports and school, and so everybody knows each other. And so the idea of someone weaving within the neighborhood and picking off children one by one, especially for that era... It's like the pain is reciprocated more intimately among a larger group of people. And you also have to think, like, is this person from us? Is this our, like, community? Or is this somebody infiltrating? And who is it? And blah, 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 blah. And especially, this isn't like fucking CSI. You don't immediately get the crazy David Caruso. Or you don't get the Criminal Minds Matthew Gray Goobler dude being able to solve everything with just a profile. Like, this stuff just... It's painstakingly slow. 
that kind of uh, investigation and it leaves the movie kind of with more tension than I would think. You know, the movie does remind me a lot of like a Criminal Minds episode, especially the way the the grabber talks to Finney that you're starting to see in Hawk's performance, which is both wounded and full of rage and kind of remorse at the same time about what he's doing. Like there's so much acting being done with just the way Hawk positions his body and he'll like crouch and kind of shrink himself to feel a little bit more vulnerable to try to connect with the kid more. There's definitely this notion of him trying to like peel back the layers of Finney's personality and try to get him to, you know, play the mental game that he wants to play and watching their dynamics go along and watching Finney, who's a reserved kid, know how to navigate his emotions just enough to try to peel back uh, the grabber's layers too is a fun little cat and mouse within a movie that genuinely feels like you know the kids in the trap already you know the mouse is already almost dead but you're just sitting there watching this kid slowly try to navigate his way out and so i guess the big bulk of the movie is him answering these calls from the phone in the basement and the calls are able to give finney some advice and some help and you would think that the movie would get boring because of that where you know, oh, the kid learned something new about what he could try, and then he tries it, and I, I, it doesn't work until it moves him a little bit further in the plot, that sort of thing. And so that back and forth can be annoying or kind of boring, but I never found it so. And I really just do think it's the performances here. Like whenever Ethan Hawke's on screen, it's terrifying in a new way. And one of the things I love about the film is that it never does the Criminal Minds thing where it just lays out the reasons why Ethan Hawke is the way he is. It just kind of lets that sit in your brain because ultimately it's not about him. It's about the kid kind of gaining confidence and learning to rely on himself and his strengths in the one time where he absolutely needs to do it. Otherwise, he's going to fucking die. You know, there's nothing like a near-death experience to really test your metal, and this movie's kind of doing that. So watching this kid sort of grow up through these trials and tribulations, it's a weird kind of coming-of-age structure in a horror movie. And it's something that, you know, if you listen to Cargill talk about screenwriting and the movies that he loves, it makes perfect sense that this movie would be what pops up like Cargo's a huge horror fan huge coming of age fan and it just makes sense that they would build this kind of thing uh the joe hill short story is originally only like a second act of a third like if you were to make it a movie it really only is the second act just the bit in the basement there's no real like beginning or end and what derrickson and cargill decided to do was after Derrickson approached Cargill talking about how he wanted to make a movie, I think he calls it the American, he wants to make his American 500 Blows, something about the trauma and the difficulty of Derrickson's own childhood and him working through that after years of therapy, uh, they realized that they could take the structure of the black phone, stretch it out to have the first third be that 
childhood trauma and working through a lot of shit and basically integrating Derrickson as uh, his de facto lead. And then the end of the movie could just be, you know, the end of the movie and where the natural progression of things would go. And uh, Cargill being friends with Joe Hill and having him fully uh, with, with them during the writing of this thing uh, and being in their corner made the movie feel more cohesive. It never really felt to me like one part was Derrickson trauma dumping and the other part was just the rest of the movie. It felt like it was integrated. And, you know, there's some details in there that's, you know, heavy. And it, it's weird. I don't really want to lean into the whole Joe Hill is Stephen King's thing, son thing. But, you know, when you've got an abusive alcoholic father and religious trauma on top of that, you know, that, I, I don't know. Maybe it harkens too hard. Actually, one of the stories I heard that was funny was originally in the short story, the guy that kidnaps Finney is a clown, a clown for hire. And they realized as soon as the It movies came out, like, nah, we need to do something different. We need to change this guy. So instead, they changed him from a clown to a magician and the visual imagery they had was of this magician's uh, devil mask where you could change the bottom half of the mask to like change emotions and faces and whatnot. And that would be the inspiration for how the grabber expresses himself through his mask, never through uh, his actual face until, you know, like much, much later in the movie. That costume design is just a lot of fun too. Like that's something that's an immediate halloween costume and if you can nail it shit i actually wouldn't mind being the grabber i think i've got like a fake top hat here somewhere if i could get a bottom half of the mask that'd be kind of rad if i could pull that off that'd be a lot of fun <laughs> oh man uh i saw ethan hawk in uh public too once and that guy's tall so i can only imagine being a 13 year old going up against that guy it's there's definitely some great cinematography that takes advantage of the full like height of this guy. Uh, some of the cinematography, there are like these uh, Super 8 breaks where sometimes I think it's Gwen's visions. And sometimes I think it's just like establishing the atmosphere and the time period and the sort of like creepiness of what's going on. The sort of raw, almost like snuff film adjacent like the stuff before you get snuffed that kind of raw grimy ugly look of the grabber that stuff is really really freaky it reminded me of sinister quite a bit which is a derrickson like big breakout film and uh i mean i guess you could uh, no i guess the breakout breakout would either be like hellraiser his sequel or the uh, exorcism of emily rose but I would say, like, the one that catapulted Derrickson into, like, mainstream would be uh, Sinister. Also with Hawk. But, yeah, like, seeing those uh, Super 8 videos there, just nice, good way to sink me into the mood. Uh, don't really... I'm not going to say this movie, like, stunned the hell out of me. You know, I'm not going to say it's my favorite horror movie of the year. But there's something about it that I really haven't been able to shake. I really haven't been able to stop thinking about it or when i do think about it i think about it in higher esteem more and more and i think it's just in one way you could kind of see the seams that make this thing you know the coming of age stuff and god uh tame's performance is stellar 
I think the one that's really going to get the big attention out of this is Madeline McGraw, who's been in stuff like uh, Toy Story 4, and she was in the Mitchells vs. the Machines, and this is her big like live-action breakout. I think she was on some Disney Channel show, but um, she is just giving it all. Whenever that girl is on screen, she is throwing out 100%. There's a, there's a scene that's one of just the best scenes I've seen all year where she's arguing with her dad about uh, these visions or like anytime that Gwen has to talk to the cops, it makes her dad piss because it reminds him of what was happening with her mom. And so he's fueled by alcohol and unchecked grief and rage is like yelling at this child and really like abusing the hell out of her it's not an easy scene to watch but watching Gwen uh go after her father with this like and I know what this is I know this specific feeling when you're getting your ass beat or like if you were hit as a kid or spanked as a kid you've got this moment where you want to cry but you don't want the person on the other end that's hurting you to get you don't want to give them the satisfaction that they've hurt you and so you instead like flip that crying into rage and just this defiance like growl of tears and being pissed off and fuck you i'm stronger than you and she does that against her dad in a flip of a dime and from what I heard from Derrickson, that scene was improv by her. Like, shit. When you watch Madeline McGraw throughout this film, whether she's beating the shit out of some bullies for her brother, whether she's picking on her brother, whether she's, like, defending him to death or, like, like crazily looking for this kid. You know, I think uh, when Cargill wrote uh, her intro in the script... It was something along the lines of Gwen is the ray of sunshine in a like in, in a nightmarish shitstorm or something along those lines. And it really plays off. You know, it Derrickson, I think at one point, uh, McGraw was like busy doing the Disney Channel show and the studio wanted them to do like reshoots or recast or whatnot. And he was like, No, like we need this girl. And I will tank the movie if that means that I can't have her. And I think he made the right fucking choice. Because this is the kind of role that whenever we're looking back on stuff in about five years or so, whenever she really hits that big mainstream thing and you're like, oh, have you seen her in Black Phone? The cards were, it was in the cards all along. If you've seen Black Phone, you know this girl is a fucking superstar in the making. So, yeah, uh, Madeline McGraw, keep your eyes out and peeled for her. Um, trying to think about a little bit more of this. It really just comes across as like a straightforward, really scary, uh, and scary only, scary not because of the supernatural. I would say that. It's not really scary because it's supernatural. There's not like a crazy jump scare that got me or whatnot. It's more just wanting this kid to do well against his captor and me being scared that you know Derrickson has not been afraid to kill kids so you sit there and you're just like ah shit I'm really hoping it doesn't get him or whatnot. but yeah if you want like a solid coming of age horror movie a really good sibling bond 
some kind of like if, if you're into Stephen King stuff, I think you'd be into this. It very much has the kind of uh, it. It feels like a campfire story almost, just a little bit extended and you know given some context. But it really does feel like a really solid like just thing you would tell somebody around the campfire to freak them out. It's just like a good good old-fashioned horror movie and so yeah that'll be it for me on the black phone uh please go check this thing out i think right now it's streaming on peacock but uh, if you can catch it on blu-ray or redbox i would definitely recommend it worth your time and thank you again for listening to the podcast the movies i've been your host daniel barrios if you want to follow me you can do so on twitter at the movies underscore pod I'm going to keep rolling through spooky season. Whatever I can find and review, I shall do for y'all. But let's be honest here. If you've looked at the podcast or if you've listened to the podcast for any period of time, you know horror is my favorite genre. And you know I'm going to be talking about that shit. So, yeah. Until next time again, thank you so much for listening. And you all take care. (laughs) 